for the glory of your name, Jesus. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, loved ones, so uh, good and needed. So good and needed to be together. Welcome to worship tonight. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, starting at verse 1, and we're going to 46. Uh, and you might be like, uh, did you say 46 or 6? I said 46. All right, so let's strap in. That means you're going to need a journal. You're going to need some pens. You're going to need your Bible. And so if you do not have a Bible, put your hand up right now, and our ushers are coming forward, and we want to put one right in your lap. We believe the Word of God is inerrant. We believe the Word of God is sufficient. We believe the Word of God is our authority, and so we need to have a copy of it to follow along and hear what God has to say to us and respond in faith. And if you do not have a a copy of God's Word at home, we want to give that to you as a free gift to encourage you to continue to study God's word at home. Well, if you are not firm in your faith, Isaiah 7 verse 9 says, you will not be firm at all. I'll say it again. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. That's a sobering word for us. And that's a great segue into this message in our series on Elijah. Welcome, loved ones, back to the School of Faith. You ready? School is in session. Let's get to the Lord. Elijah, God's presence, power, and provision in the life of faith. Now remember, we should have this definition of faith memorized by now, but if not, let's Go through it again. Write it down in your journal. Here's what faith is, as we see all throughout God's word. It is this, choosing to believe God's word and obeying it in his power. Faith is a choice, loved ones. Faith is a choice. I'm going to choose to believe in this circumstance, in the situation in our world, in this trial I'm facing in my life, that God's word is true right now. Faith is a choice, a spirit-empowered choice to believe it and then obey it in his power because we cannot on our own. Praise the Lord for our Savior. Amen? Praise the Lord for our Savior. And faith, we believe it, we obey it. Why? Because he will be glorified. God will be glorified and he promises his best outcome for me. And so today, we look at the posture of faith. The posture of the life of faith. What does someone who's walking the life of faith look like? And here it is. The posture of faith at all times and all things is unwavering. There's Jesus right there. Unwavering. Hey, let me, let me ask you a question. Um, I was, this was uh, stirring in my heart this week, so I thought I'd look up some stats here. But uh, have you ever struggled with having bad posture? And I never struck. Now everyone's like, no, no, totally not me. Totally not me. No. No. Anyone struggle here with having bad posture? Maybe just me? Yeah. Okay. Like, so, like everybody. Okay. Very cool. Um, so, I did. So, do you know the impact of bad posture? So, I did some study in the Mayo Clinic this week and um, some other health agencies. I just, I just really want this to be helpful, you know? And so, here, here's the impact of bad posture uh, shoulder pain. Neck pain, back aches, headaches, uh, decreased respiratory function. It's 
kind of a big one. Spinal dysfunction uh, and joint degeneration. Everyone's shuffling. Okay, this shoulder's back. All right, 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 right. So what's very clear to see here, loved ones, is that bad posture is a big deal, isn't it? Bad posture is a big deal. It's got some serious consequences over time if it's not fixed. We end up limping around. We end up immobilized. But here's what we got to realize with that. Just as bad posture in the body, physically, has serious consequences for our physical health, get this, bad posture, as we will see today, has disastrous or crippling consequences in our spiritual health. Bad posture in our faith has some seriously crippling consequences for our spiritual health. And this highlights the problem. Often, we live with bad faith posture, don't we? We don't stand firm in our faith. We're not unwavering in our faith, are we? We've got bad faith posture. We limp, we waver in our faith and trust in God and his word. And what's the result of this, loved ones? You see it going on all over the place today, in your life and in mine too. We turn from God and put our faith in other things don't we? Other things. And we end up crippled in our faith. We limp around, toss to and fro in our unbelief between all different opinions, feelings, doubts, beliefs, ideologies, circumstances, times, and seasons. And what's the result? Here it is. Here's life right here. Bad faith posture. Fear. Uh Oh, all of a sudden we start to feel that fear creep in. It's like, I got, I got a posture problem here. Anxiety. There it is. Another one, another indicator, stressed out. Where's the peace of the Lord there? How about this one? Joylessness. Joylessness. We got bad faith posture at that point. Even in the grief, there's still a joy through the grief. Doesn't mean it's not there. It hurts, doesn't it, sometimes? But there's a joy, a deep joy in the Lord that you know he will carry you through. There's a a living for what matters least instead of what matters most. And instead of standing firm in our faith, we are not firm at all, and we compromise in it. Bad faith posture. And so let's look at our context, because this is what Elijah's taken head on right here. I love how God's word speaks to us so clearly in our day. Elijah, he's faced head on with the same choice you and I are faced with today and will be tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. The choice of will he limp between two opinions or will he stand firm? Will he stand firm in his faith against overwhelming odds? Doesn't it seem like the odds are continually stacked against Christians these days and the church as society continues to move? The direction it's gone just seems like the odds are getting stacked, isn't it? Welcome to the life of Elijah right here. Overwhelming odds on Mount Carmel as he stands toe-to-toe against 450 prophets of Baal in one of the greatest showdowns, the greatest firefights, if you will, in all of history. To prove once and for all who the real, who the true God is. All right, loved ones, buckle up. Here we go. 
And here's the big idea we need to understand. Write this down. This is what chapter 18, one of the most well-known events in all of the Bible, is driving home for us. There's only one God. Amen? There is only one God, and he is faithful to fulfill his word. There's only one God, and he's faithful to fulfill his word. So stand firm on the word and don't waver. No matter the time, no matter the season, no matter the odds, no matter the opposition. There's one God, and he is faithful to fulfill his word. Stand firm on it and don't waver. And, this, and here's what's really important to remember as we approach chapter 18. Because even though we've said this a few times throughout the course of the series, you look at a chapter like this, you're like, oh, it's creeping in. I could never do that. I can't relate. Listen, remember, Elijah, James 5, 17. Um, he's an ordinary man with a nature like ours. Tempted with the same doubts, tempted with the same struggles you and I face every day. He's an ordinary man in the hands of an extraordinary God. Let that encourage you. He's an ordinary man in the hands of an extraordinary God. Elijah is a nobody from nowhere. Remember, they can't even locate with any accuracy where Tishbe was. He even, they don't even know where his hometown was. He just kind of appears. No massive genealogy. And let this encourage you where you're at with what you're facing today. Ordinary man, you and me, in the hands of an extraordinary God. And so here we are in 871 BC, three and a half years into a devastating drought and famine that is crippling Israel. Now, why is this famine going on? Get our context. Uh, it's a consequence given by God to the people of Israel for their idolatry, their worshiping of false gods, Baal, Asherah, Mot, and mixing that with the worship of Yahweh. All right, and this is fulfilling God's word because he always fulfills his word. In Deuteronomy 11, he said he would bring a drought and famine if they turned from him. Exclusive worship. And so under the rule of Ahab and Jezebel, which we have right here, Israel's in the worst shape it's ever been spiritually. Worst shape. Ever been. And so Elijah, he's been living with a widow and her son in Zarephath. There you go. You'll see Zarephath on there. It's on the Phoenician coast, up north there. He's in Zarephath. And if you recall in verses 17 to 24, God, through Elijah, has just raised the widow's son from dead. Awesome. Who's like our God, huh? Who is like our God? He is awesome. He raises her son from the dead, and he used that miracle not only... To, to test and refine Elijah's faith for what's coming right now in chapter 18, but also to save that woman. He brought life out of death, not just for her son physically, but for her spiritually. And that brings us to our text today. That sets the scene. Ready? And so here in our text today, we are going to see three marks of the life of faith that does not waver in faithfulness to God no matter the circumstances it faces, and through it displays the glory of God through his presence, power, and provision against all odds. Ready to go? <laughs> Buckle up. Let's take a trip to Mount Carmel. Let's stand and honor the authority of God's word. We won't read through all 46 verses. We're going to read through two and set the scene. Okay, so read them nice and loud. Elijah confronts Ahab. Verse one, let's go. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. 
So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Hear the word of the Lord and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Get your pens out. Let's go. Faith stands firm on God's word with, first point, unwavering commitment no matter the call. Unwavering commitment no matter the call. Faith declares this. It sees the word of the Lord. It hears the word of the Lord. And it says, I'm in, God. I'm in. I'm in. So here's the question facing us these first 20 verses. Will you trust God's word and follow it? No matter the call. No matter the call. See, verses one and two, after many days, you see right there at the widow's house, God speaks to Elijah again. He just shows up again, and he, and he tells Elijah to go and confront Ahab. Now, this is the second time God has asked him to do this. Remember in chapter 17, verse one, that was the first time he tells Ahab to go. And when God gives him his word, notice what Elijah does. He's like, uh, did you know that guy's like on a manhunt for me? Do you know he wants to like slaughter me, him and his wife? And doesn't do any of that, does he? No excuses. Why? Because he's got an unwavering commitment to God's word, no matter the call, no matter the cost. And he obeys it. And he says, when Elijah goes, God will send rain on the earth. The drought's over. God's word fulfilled. Do you see that right there? The promise, verse one and two. And so in verse two, Elijah gets up. He obeys God's word. He leaves Zarephath to confront Ahab. Now something else is happening while Elijah's going on it. So God's, you look at the sovereignty of God. He's moving Elijah around. He's getting, he's getting Ahab over here. So he's moving Elijah from Zarephath. But notice what's else happening in the text. Under the sovereign hand of God, moving all the players together. Verses three to six, let's read. And Ahab, while Elijah's moving from Zarephath, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that means, by the way, the word cut off there, the, the phrase cut off in the Hebrew means to massacre. You know why Elijah would be a little fearful to go? Uh, the king's wife is massacring anyone who promotes the exclusive worship of Yahweh. Would you go? Would you go? Would I? Let's just get honest before the Lord. Cut off the prophets of the Lord. Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the, save the people, right? Got to save, we'll find some grass and save the water, or get the water so people can be saved. The ones whom I'm called to lead before the Lord. Is that what he says? Oh, so that we can say, what? So we can save the horses and mules. Talk about wickedness in the extreme. The people that have been entrusted to him by the Lord, he values them less than a mule. We may save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself. Obadiah went in another direction by himself. See, the drought in the nation, you see there in verse 2, it was so severe now that Ahab is desperate. And he tells the manager of his household, this man named Obadiah, to go searching with him in opposite directions through Israel for springs of water where there might be some grass left to feed the horses and animals. 
Now, isn't it incredible what it says right here at the end of verse 3? It says, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Look at this. Ahab and Jezebel are out massacring the prophets of the Lord, and yet the very one who's very intimately involved in their lives fears the Lord and is a true worshiper of Yahweh. You see God's way. Why can't they touch him? Because God hasn't allowed it. You be encouraged. Wherever the Lord has you, even if there's lots of opposition in your workplace or in your family, in your neighborhood, whatever, listen, you're not going anywhere until God says he is with you. Praise the Lord. Be faithful where you are. Follow his word. Obadiah, he, it says right there in verse 3, he feared the Lord greatly. He's a true worshiper of Yahweh. And while Jezebel is, in verse 4, cutting off God's prophets, Obadiah hid a hundred of them in caves and provided food for them to live. And Obadiah goes one way, Ahab goes the other. And then look at this, verse uh, 7 to 16. Keep reading. Let's let the narrative just take it. Here it is, 7 to 16. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, go figure, under the sovereign hand of God, Behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face. He said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And Elijah, as he answered him, he says, It is I. Go and tell your lord. Now, that means just go and tell your master. Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. Verse 9. And he said, <laughs> He looks at that as a punishment. Elijah's punishing him. They've got to go talk to his boss enough said. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord, that is Ahab, has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, oh, he's not here, he would take an oath. That means Ahab would make them promise of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And that has consequences if it's broken. Verse 11, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here. Can't you just hear the fear in Obadiah's voice? Can't you hear the anxiety? And now you say, go to that guy? He's ready to wipe out everybody, including me. And as soon as I've gone from you, now here comes the assumptions, right? Because when we get all stressed out, we get fearful, we get anxious, we start awfulizing. Does anyone else struggle with that? Oh, but this could happen in this, and what about this, and what about this? Welcome to Obadiah right here. Verse 12. And, and, and then, as soon as I've gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord, that is the Holy Spirit, notice the capital S, will carry you, I not know where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he can't find you, he's going to kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord for me, you can just hear this going out of control now, right? It's like we have the same conversation. Yeah, but what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Verse 13. Has it not been told, my Lord, that means, Elijah, haven't you heard? What I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Haven't you heard about that? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here, and he will kill me. He's gonna, you're sending me on a death sentence. That's fear talking, isn't it? That's not obedience to the word of God. That's fear over faith. And Elijah said this, I love this, just so tender in his response. He says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to Ahab today. God said it, it's going to happen. 
So Obadiah went, all right, he went, praise the Lord, to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. See, under the sovereign hand of God, Obadiah meets Elijah, and Elijah tells him, this is actually God's word, telling Obadiah through Elijah, to go tell Ahab that Elijah is here and wants to see him. To which, instead of faith in the Lord and trusting in God's care to him, Obadiah, already on edge from hiding the prophets, right? A little on edge. Are they going to find out? Looking over his shoulder. He responds in fear by saying that Ahab's so intent on finding Elijah that if Obadiah tells him he's at such and such a place and the Holy Spirit takes Elijah away from that place, Ahab's going to kill him. Just like he threatened to do to every other kingdom or nation that said they hadn't seen him. Verse 10. Now notice Elijah's response in verse 15. This is where we're going to drill. Elijah's response is right here. He says, as the Lord of hosts lives. He specifically uses that name of God. Why? Anyone know what the Lord of hosts means? Here's what it means. It means the God of angel armies lives. As the God of heaven's army who commands the innumerable host of heaven lives. As the Lord of hosts, the God that he serves, Obadiah and Elijah, based on God's word, listen, Elijah will see Ahab today and nothing can stop it. He reminds Obadiah who the Lord is, who he serves. Where do you need to be reminded of that today? See, here's the key. Elijah's remembrance of who God is, God's power, his character, his trustworthiness, fuels his commitment to say, I'm in, God. I'm in. I remember you are the Lord of hosts. I'm not outnumbered here. I remember one person and God is an army. And when God is on your side, you are always fighting that battle in your favor. It's a mismatch already. It's his recollection, remembrance of who God is that fuels his commitment to say, I'm in God. I need you. I'm tempted to waver. I'm tempted to be afraid. I need you, but I'm in. My allegiance to you is greater than my allegiance to man. Are you remembering your God is in what you're facing right now? Because if not, your commitment and mine right there will be compromised on the word of God. No matter the laws that get passed down, no matter how dark society gets, are you remembering that if you're saved in Jesus Christ, you and I are servants of the Lord of hosts. And he is by our side. And cannot be stopped. Look at verses 17 to 20. Keep reading. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He levels an accusation against him. You troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, Ahab, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and you followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Look at verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. The word troubler there, if you circle that in verse 17, the Hebrew for the word troubler there means you're a troublemaker, Elijah. 
You know what, you know what Ahab's leveling an accusation against Elijah of doing? Ahab's blaming Elijah for the drought. You're the cause of it. Now, if he's doing that to his face, how many other times do you think he's done it to the people around him? It's Elijah's fault. But Elijah's willing to risk the accusation. Are you and I, when we're accused for following the Lord, and those accusations get leveled at us, and we need unwavering commitment empowered by the Spirit of God in that moment, don't we? Or we're going to compromise. Elijah knows what it's like to have accusations leveled against him. But he doesn't let it shake him in this moment. See, notice this. Here's the key right here. What's so sad in these three verses, instead of repenting of his sin when Elijah's like, you're responsible. You are responsible for, for, for going against the word of God. Instead of repenting of his sin, Ahab blames Elijah. There's the blame game again. And he had a shot right here to repent. And if he had repented, all the lives that are about to be slaughtered may have been saved. Here's the chance. And what does he do? He gets defensive. No way. In his pride. Loved ones, we have to understand this. There is no favor of God on defensiveness. There is no favor of God on your pride or mine. Blaming, pointing fingers, there is no favor of God on that. He is against it. It is prideful, loved ones. And it is honestly being, hear this, loved ones, kids, kids, eyes up here, love you so much. You know what? One of the worst things you could do in any situation you face is to get defensive and point the finger. It's one of the worst responses you could ever give, especially when you're confronted with the truth of God's word, whether from a a, a loving brother or sister who says, I see this going on. Well, no, that's it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Receive it. Ahab has a chance right here. How much collateral is happening because of your defensiveness right now and mine? How many ruined relationships? How many marriages are in turmoil? How many children have serious mom and dad wounds? How many parents are wounded by their kids? Don't, loved ones, please. I plead with you on the authority of God's word. Humble yourself under his word. Ditch the defensiveness. And Elijah challenges him here. He challenges Ahab to gather all the nation of Israel. You see that? The northern kingdom. Verse 19, all the nation, all the northern kingdom, along with 850 false prophets, 450 Baal, 400 Asherah, to meet him on Mount Carmel to determine once and for all who the who the true God is. So here's Mount Carmel right here. So remember, Elijah's come from Zarephath, okay? There's Mount Carmel on the coast. I stood on top of Mount Carmel. Yes, it's amazing. And so you'll see what it looks like right here because you got to see. That's where the showdown's taking place. There's Mount Carmel. And here, this statue right here. You'll see it on the next slide. There's, uh, there's the statue that's on top of Mount Carmel right now. I've stood at the base of that statue to commemorate this event right here. Okay? And so you see in verse 20, Ahab accepts the challenge and he rounds everybody up. We're coming. Now, just live in the text here in Elijah's shoes. How's your commitment level to follow the word at this point? Hey, Elijah, I want you to go up against 850 false prophets, call the king of Israel, and then just call the whole nation. 
How's your commitment to follow the word right there? If we're not remembering who God is against all odds, would you go? Would your faith and mine in God be greater than our fear of man? our self-preservation of our own lives? Would you say, I'm in God despite of all the accusations leveled against me, risking my reputation, risking my life, risking my livelihood? Loved ones, the way, hey, loved ones, this message is so important because um, the way society's going, if you're a true Christian, you're just running out of places to hide. You might think we can duck this and avoid this, but it's just coming, and we don't have to be afraid of it, loved ones. We need to stand firm on God's word on it. But we really need to ask him to search our hearts right now. Would you go? Would I stand? Would I? See, you may not be summoned to literal Mount Carmel, but if you're saved in Jesus Christ, you've been summoned. You've been summoned to your family. You've been summoned to your job, your coworkers. You've been summoned to your neighbors. You've been summoned to your classmates. You've been summoned to your fellow believers to declare God's word, the gospel, to lovingly confront sin and bring correction as needed and to walk in increasing obedience to God's word no matter the cost. No matter the accusations, the reprisal of man in this dark world that is increasing. Just, just like Israel, it's increasing and setting against the Lord and his people. See, here's what we have to see from this verse right here. Commitment leads to courage. Commitment to the Lord and faithfulness to his word above all else leads to courage. The courage to confront in the truth and love what is sinful and evil for the glory of God. As pastors, as elders, pray for us. We need to do this every day. And we pray for you, that you would be willing to courageously, in love and truth, confront when it is needed to see restoration and to see the glory of God. And, and here's, um, if you're thinking there, and it's kind of fearful for you, I can be tempted with that too. I want to encourage us with this. You're not alone. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts is with you. It may look like you're surrounded, but rest assured of this beautiful truth we see right here from the text. The Lord of hosts surrounds what you think surrounds you. I'll say it again. The Lord of hosts surrounds what you think surrounds you and who you think surrounds you. Do not make man big and God small. Do not do it. The Lord of hosts surrounds what you think surrounds you. So faith declares, I'm in God. Will you trust God's word and follow it with unwavering commitment? Where do you need to repent of where you're wavering? Where you're backing down? Where you're like, I'm not in God. The cost is too high. The accusations are too great. No, your lack of willingness to say, I'm in and step out in obedience that he's calling you to take. See, often... The truth is, let's just get honest, you and me before the Lord, loved ones, love you so much. Often we will only stay, quote unquote, committed to God when it looks like what we want it to. When it's as comfy as we like and convenient. But um, here's what we see right from the text. Commitment based on your comfort is not commitment at all. love you. Love you enough to speak the truth in love. I need to hear this too. It's not commitment at all. 
Faith declares I'm in. Faith stands firm on God's word with unwavering commitment. And the second thing we see right here in the text is this, not only unwavering commitment, but it flows from unwavering clarity, no matter the odds. Unwavering clarity, no matter the odds. Faith declares there's only one God. Loved ones, will you stand firm with courageous clarity no matter the odds? Look at 20 to 25. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel. He gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, "How? this is the key right here. Underline it, highlight it right here. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? How long will you go on limping? If the Lord is God, then follow him. Remember, they're saying, I can worship the true God, Yahweh, and I can worship all these other gods. No, no, no. If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on a wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on a wood and put no fire on it. Verse 24. And you call upon the name of the Lord your God, name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. See, after accepting Elijah's challenge, Ahab gathers everyone on top of Mount Carmel first thing in the morning. So let's go back to Mount Carmel, get our context. Here's, you'll see it on the screen. There it is. Everybody's gathering first thing in the morning. Elijah looks out on the crowd, and he says this, verse 21. Talk about courageous clarity right here. One verses 850 plus a nation. He says, how long will you go on limping between two opinions of what God you will serve? How long are you going to limp? He calls out their bad faith posture right here. How long are you going to limp? Now, the word limping there, circle it, in the Hebrew means this, wavering. How long are you going to waver? Well, I think God will come through here, but no, I got to run to this because I don't trust God to deliver me here, so I'm going to run to this God. I'm going to run to... How long are you going to limp back and forth, waver back and forth, bounce commitment between these two gods? And Elijah says, choose. It's time to choose. Be clear. Be clear on whom you will follow. You cannot keep both options. Don't pay lip service to God and simultaneously run to Baal. Choose. God here when it serves me. Baal there when it works better. I get more social approval. Whatever. And then Elijah speaking God's word gives the showdown instructions. Did you see that? He gives the instructions to leave no doubt who the true God is. Now, we have to realize something as we look at these instructions. Look at, notice what God's doing here through Elijah. Did you catch it? God just gave the false prophets every single advantage they could have in this context. Did you get it? As we read the text, he literally gave them every single advantage to win. He's stacking the odds against himself in their eyes. You say, how do you know? Verse 20, he allows it to be on their home turf, right there, on Mount Carmel. Do you know what Mount Carmel was? It was a high place for Baal worship. It was Baal's home turf. He's not like, go to the temple. and No, no, no. He's like, I'll just go there. Okay. 
You want to play home field? Okay, I'll do that. Next, they got to choose their own bull, verse 23 and 25. Do you see that? So they can't accuse Elijah of mucking around. He says, you pick. Go ahead, pick. Just pick your bull. No defects. Number three, he allows them to set up their own altar, verse 23. So there's no trickery. It's not like Elijah, like, he like, because it's dry wood, right? It's a drought. It's not like, oh, he's not like lighting the fire. He's doing that. No, no trickery. You choose your wood. Build your altar. Notice what else he does. Verse 23, they get first crack. He goes, you go first. He gets them first crack on calling on their God. You go first. And five, notice this. God challenged them to a contest. Notice the contest itself that was supposedly slanted in Baal's favor. Why? Don't forget, Baal was the storm god. That means they thought he was the god of the sun and lightning and fire and rain. He's like, there you go. I mean, this, in their eyes, in the worshipers of Baal, this should have been a cakewalk. This is a cakewalk contest. What are you doing? That's why they say in verse 24, it is well spoken. We're giving no opposition to this contest. It's well spoken. Let's go. Elijah. And I'll look at 26 to 29. Watch. Oh, I love seeing the heads go down. Let's get into text. Come on. 26 to 29. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So it's gone on about four hours at this point. Oh, Baal, answer us. Notice the exclamation mark. Baal, answer. There was no voice, no one answered, and they limped. That means they danced. They limped around the altar that they'd made. And at noon, about four hours in, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a God. That means get louder. Get louder. Either he's musing, that means he's thinking about how to respond. He's deciding. Or he's relieving himself. That means in the Hebrew, he's having a bowel movement. He's he's going to the washroom. Or he's on a journey. He's taking a trip somewhere. Or perhaps he's asleep. Maybe he's just taking a nap and he's got to wake up. So cry louder. Cry louder, prophets. And so what'd they do? Verse 28. Notice the text. And they cried aloud. They get louder. And they cut themselves after their custom. Because they would do this in their religion to arouse the pity of Baal. He would see the damage they're doing to themselves and respond. So they take it up a notch and start cutting themselves after their custom with swords and lances. The word lance there means spear driving spears into themselves, cutting themselves with swords, until, notice the text, until the blood gushed out upon them. Gushing. It's not like little cuts. Gushing. All to get an answer. And as midday passed, that is noon, they raved on this ecstatic utterance. 
throwing things down, yelling, dancing. They raved on until the time of the offering oblation, which in Israel was the offering of the sin offering of atonement for sin with a bull at 3 p.m. But there was no voice. Look at this. No one answered. No one paid attention. That shouldn't be funny to us. That should be grievous and break our heart as it does the heart of God. See, once preparations are made, the false prophets call on the name of Baal from early morning until noon. Just, Baal, answer us! Answer us, O Baal! But notice the text. How many times does it repeat this? No voice no answer. Hour after hour, as they limp around their altar. And then in verse 27, after about four hours of this, Elijah starts to mock them. You say, that's totally unloving. No, no, no. It's not mocking as in, ha ha, you're all dead. Uh-uh. It's mocking them. It means to show the, try to show the, ask them questions to try to show the uselessness of their worship. It's like, how's that working for you? He begins to mock them. So they worked themselves into an ecstatic state, the rave, as was the custom to arouse Baal's pity. And they begin to pierce themselves with swords and spears, with blood gushing until 3 p.m. But notice 29 again. No voice, circle this. No voice, no answer, no one even paying Attention. Why? Because the God they were trying to worship doesn't exist and is powerless. You can rave on for another nine hours or nine weeks or nine months and no one will answer. And today, let's bring this into today. This world is filled with people, even in this room right now, and I can do this too. Both Christians and non-Christians, broken, deceived, and desperately limping around the altars of their false gods, crying out to them. Whether false gods of other religions, oh, it's just all the same God, it's just different names. That's false. There's only one true God, and his name is Yahweh. One God, three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Son's name, Jesus Christ, Lord of all, perfectly sinless, creator, sustainer of all things. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than his name. And only those who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. End of story. limping around the altars of false gods, other religions, or here's this, false gods of earthly treasure, possessions. Just give me what I need. Oh, house, answer us. Oh, bank account, answer us. 
Oh, pornography, answer us. Oh, status, answer us. Job, answer us. Spouse, answer us. Limping around and around and around. Desperately calling out to them hour after hour, day after day. And here's the thing right from the text, piercing ourselves. Piercing ourselves and others with many pangs, as Timothy says. To give them the deliverance, the peace, the satisfaction, the healing, hope, and eternal life. But here's the truth. Every single time, all the time, the end will be the same. No one will answer. There will be no voice. And those things you're crying out to, and I'm crying out to, they're not even paying attention to you. Fear of man, a praise of man, not even paying attention to you. They don't have saving power. They are powerless. The response will always be no, no, no. Why? Because what you seek, what you and I seek from them can only be found in a personal relationship with the one true God, Yahweh, through his son, Jesus Christ. But, loved ones, as Elijah calls us to here, you and I must choose this day whom we're going to serve. How long will we limp? How long will you limp right where you are? Look at 30 to 38. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. All right, this has been going on long enough. Come near me, to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord had been thrown down in their rave. Throws it down, he repairs it. Elijah took the 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Now, why is that so important? Because the Lord instructs him to take 12 stones to show that the Lord is still the one true God over all Israel. Remember, there's 12 tribes, and there was a division. Remember, we talked about that in the first message? Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. What God's showing right here is, I'm still the Lord over all. There's only one God in Israel. So he gives 12 stones to whom the word of the Lord from Jacob came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar, verse 32, in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench. This is interesting. He makes a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he, uh, by the way, that's about 15 liters. And he put the wood in order. And he cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offerings and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And Elijah said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, there it is, the offering to atone for sin again, Elijah the prophet came near and said, oh, look at this prayer. Look at this beautiful, simple, humble prayer of faith. Write it down, scribble it all up, make sure we remember this. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that is Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. 
not of my own accord, at your instruction, at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer, that this people may know, what's the purpose? They may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Bring them to repentance. Then, watch this. Then the fire of the Lord fell. Boom! And consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. See, now it's Elijah's turn. Now it's Elijah's turn. He fixes the altar that's thrown down, but in addition, he builds a trench, the ditch, 15 liters. He puts the bull on top of the altar, the 12 stones. Then just to stack the odds a bit more, do you know what God does? To leave no doubt who the true God is, God speaks through Elijah in verses 33 to 34, and he tells Baal's prophets to fill up four pitchers of water. That's what jar means. It's actual pitcher. A pitcher of water, and dump each pitcher on the altar three times. Okay, do the math. How many pitchers of water, kids? Do the math. Three times four. How many pitchers of water got dumped on the altar? Way to go. By the way, did I get the math right? Okay, just say it. There's a lot. There's a lot of water that's being dumped on there. Now, now, wait a second. You, huh? What are you thinking here? Now, I used to live up north, and that means you camp. And so I used to camp all the time. And, and no matter the season that you're in, there's the first rule of building a campfire is you don't use wet wood. That's like campfire 101. You use the dry wood. What on earth is God doing? He's stacking the odds. He's stacking the odds. He's leaving no doubt so that everyone knows who lit it. You'll see it. Write this down on the screen. God loves to stack the odds so everyone knows who lit the wood. Boom. God loves to stack the odds so that everyone knows the man or woman of faith who stands firm on his word against all odds, he loves to stack it so everyone knows who likes it. And there's no doubt, only God could have done that. Only God could have changed that life. Only God could have provided that way. He loves to stack. Where's he stacking the odds with you right now? Will you trust him? And then 36 to 38, after obeying God's word, all the preparations are made. Elijah, he just prays a simple prayer of faith. You see that? So simple. In humility and dependency. So contrary to Baal's prophet's prayers. Going for hours, dancing, slashing, yelling. Elijah, he just asked God, verse 36, what does he do? God, go back to the text, glorify your name. Let it be known that you're the God of Israel. And let it be known without a doubt that he is the one true God. And what else does he say? Verse 36, let it be known that his word is the truth and that Elijah is his servant. Verse 37, bring the nation of Israel back to repentance. Turn their hearts back to him. Just a simple prayer of faith. Do it for your glory, Lord. Let it be according to your word. He prays God's word. Let it be according to your word. Turn their hearts. There's nothing selfish in his prayer. Look at, do this so I can show how good I am. So I can be proven right. He says, glorify your name. And then, in response to the prayer of faith on his word, this happens. Right there, on that screen. That happens. Just an ordinary man in the hands of an extraordinary God. And God says, yes. 
do this for my glory, in accordance with my word, you follow me, bam, there you go. And I'll even take care of the trench. Awesome. The wood, the stones, the dust, and every drop of water consumed in a second. Through one man, ordinary nature like ours, who is willing to stand in God's power with unwavering, courageous clarity, no matter the odds. He leaves no doubt about it. There's only one God. His name's the Lord. Look at the response, 39 to 40. Go back to the text. It says this. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. Praise the Lord. They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. Notice, Yahweh, he's God. Yahweh, he's God. Verse 40. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized him. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. How's their responding? True worship. The Lord, Yahweh, is God. Yahweh is God. And they declare who was the true God. And then Elijah and the nation of Israel, they seize the false prophets, slaughter them to purge the wickedness from the land as God had commanded to be done in Deuteronomy 13, 1-5 if they refuse to repent. Again, God fulfills his word. And even though God's word seemed foolish, fruitless in that situation, Elijah didn't waver in his faith but stood firm on God's word and declared it with courageous clarity because he was so clear, as we must be loved ones, so clear on who God is and knew that God would be faithful to fulfill exactly what he said in his word he would do, and he still will today. Faith declares there's only one God. Loved ones, will we stand firm with courageous clarity? Because here's the truth, here's the truth. Every day you and I face a showdown. Every day. You and I face a showdown in the face of idolatry and unbelief and opposition. And here's the, here's the showdown. Will you and I stand firm with courageous clarity in the Lord in his power? Calling on his name. Lord, give me strength to stand with courage and boldness and faith in this time right now when I'm tempted to run. Remember, help me to remember that you are the Lord of hosts. The truth of who he is and what he said to see him glorified. Or will we go on limping between two different opinions? What gods are you limping around the altar right now that you need to repent of? What gods? Just be honest. Take it before the Lord. The God of wealth in pursuing earthly treasure to fulfill what only Christ can fulfill. The God of status. The justling for position. The fear of man. The God of sex in pursuing pornography as an escape and and as comfort when your greatest comfort is found in Christ alone. The God of self. I want to get my way, so I'm going to lash out in anger at my wife and my kids and those around me because I want to control the situation. How long will you go on limping? The God of selfishness. Loved one, it's time for courageous clarity to say there's only one God I serve. Help me, Lord. And he will. It's time to choose whom we will serve. And here's some good news. Where's Jesus in all this? Seems like a massacre. Where's Jesus? Did you catch it? Baal's prophets who limped around the altar, they thought they had to shed their own blood to be saved. Did you see it? Swords, spears, shedding their own blood to be saved and be delivered, to get right with their God 
but Yahweh, Yahweh, the one true God, the Lord, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to come to earth and live a perfectly sinless life. Jesus Christ didn't sin once. If we don't believe that, we're not true Christians because that is the gospel. He did not sin once. And he came to earth in perfect obedience to God and shed his own blood so that you could be saved. I could be saved from the power of sin and its penalty, which ultimately leads to eternity in hell separated from God. If you and I repent of our sin and confess him as Lord and Savior, he is the one the offering of oblation points to, the great atoning for sin the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. And Jesus has made a way for us now to have peace with him and God in a right relationship as God's children. And if you're here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your personal savior, maybe you thought you had, but you didn't believe in the true Christ. Here's word. How long will you go on limping? Don't, don't. He loves you so much. He says, stop. How long are you going to go piercing yourself? I love you. I got pierced so you didn't have to be. I got pierced for you. I created you. I know the plans I have for you. I got pierced so you don't have to be. But how long will you go on limping? How long? It grieves his heart, loved one. And children of God, if you've made that decision, same thing. I I got pierced. You don't have to be. How long will you limp? Come and rest. Find rest in me. Faith stands firm on God's word with unwavering commitment no matter the call. Unwavering clarity no matter the odds. And lastly with this, we land the plane here with unwavering humility in all things. Unwavering humility in all things. God's hand, make no mistake, God's hand is always on the humble. God's hand is on the humble. Will you humble yourself and trust his word? Here it is, 41 to 43. Let's look. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. That's good news. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went. So finally Ahab listens, huh? Finally he listens to Elijah. He went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. That's an expression of humility and dependence, by the way. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. See, after the showdown, Elijah tells Ahab to go and celebrate the end of the drought because the sound of rushing, verse 41, that means abundant, rain is near and God's about to fulfill his promise to end the drought. And Ahab listens. Now, I want you to notice Elijah's response. Did God answer Elijah the first time he prayed? Did he? Go back to the text. Did you see it? No, it took seven times for that servant to get over there. Elijah's praying the whole time. Well, wait a second. Notice Elijah, instead of getting cocky and prideful and puffed up at what he had just seen God do through him, instead of getting cocky and prideful and puffed up at how God had used him to deal a serious blow to Baal worship in the nation and lead the people to worship the Lord again, he doesn't get puffed up. What does he do? He bows down. He gets low. It wasn't like, yeah, I did that. But praise God. How many times, eh? But that's me. Glory to God. Yeah, I did that. He bows down. He gets 
low in humility. And, and he begins in verse 42 to fervently and persistently pray for God to fulfill his word and end the drought. He sends his servant seven times. And notice when God doesn't answer, it's like, God, you owe me. Nope. Elijah doesn't get agitated. Well, I did this for you, God. Can't you do this quickly for me? I just went up against 850 prophets. Uh-uh. Instead, he gets low and he stays there. He stays down. He continues to pray persistently, humbly trusting God to fulfill his word in his time and his way. And all of a sudden, this happens. Eyes on the screen. And hear the word of the Lord. Verse 44. And at the seventh time, the servant said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. It means the size of a man's hand. Just right there. Look at all that dry, parched ground. Behold, there's a cloud. Would you look at that and be like, oh, yes. Drought's ending. You'd be like, what is that? What's that? He goes, look. Behold. Like the size of a man's hand is rising from the sea. And look at what Elijah said. Oh, there it is. He said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain's going to stop you. There's a monsoon coming. What? And in a little while, look at this. He keeps praying. Boom, 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 boom. You think God's faithful to fulfill his word? And the humble prayers of his people? And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. See that? Underline it. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. See this? God fulfills his word from 17.1 and 18.1. He fulfills it. Now notice in verse 46, the humility of Elijah. One last time. In ancient times, king had, kings had heralds that would run before their chariots to announce their approach. You know what it's doing? You know why this line is so important? Verse 46. Because it shows that Elijah, again, is humbling himself again under the Lord and under his under Ahab, because as the prophet of God to Israel, he was called by God to be a servant of the king, not to be his enemy. Would you serve your enemies? Would you humble yourself before those who have attacked you and accused you? Jesus did. And he gives us the strength to do it. When we call us, look at, look at the hand of the Lord on Elijah. And now here he is submitting to God's word and the role God had given him by honoring and submitting to the king instead of opposing him, even though he was an enemy. And the result, 46, and the hand of the Lord, God's power, his presence, and provision was on Elijah. And by the way, you want to get a little glimpse of God's power? You'll see a map where Elijah ran. Mount Carmel, all the way to Jezreel. That's Ahab's winter camp. Do you know how far the distance is there? Elijah just like channels his inner athlete, you know, like a little sojourner, huh? 15 to 20 miles, and he's beating a chariot. Talk about the hand of the Lord, huh? Awesome. So he's like, okay, Elijah, go run a marathon. And he does. And as he humbled himself to obey God's word and called for him to serve Ahab, God empowered him. God's hand is on the humble, but it is against the proud. Will you humble yourself and trust his word? I leave us with this quote right here. No humility before the Lord means no stability in the Lord. You will always waver in your pride, as will I.
No humility before the Lord means no stability in the Lord. And you may say, well, this is so hard. Isn't it hard to do? Loving our enemies and stacking the odds and no matter the call. Listen, Jesus Christ has gone before us and lived a life of perfect faith in the Lord. Be encouraged. Our Savior has gone before us. The greater Elijah, standing firm on God's word with unwavering commitment no matter the call, even to the point of death on a cross, with unwavering clarity no matter the odds. He, Jesus never limped once. And with unwavering humility, Philippians 2, to the point of death. Even death on a cross when we were his enemies. And if you are saved in him, right here, he has promised and has given already. You and I, all we need for life and godliness and to live as nobody's from nowhere. Ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God with an unwavering posture of faith at all times and all things. Here's the question, will you call on his name and follow him in his power? Hope Ottawa, this is not fear time. This is faith time. Will you call on his name? Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we see you all over this text. And on behalf of this church, even for myself, Lord, I confess, we confess so often we limp between two different opinions. Our trust in you so often is based on our comfort. It's based on our convenience, Lord, and we repent. I repent. I repent. You call us in these days and in the days ahead to courageous clarity. And yet so often, instead of humbling ourselves and seeing your hand upon us, we have your hand against us to break us of our pride. And you will give grace to the humble, but you will oppose the proud. And thank you in your great love for us that you are long-suffering. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your rebuke. Thank you for your refreshment. Thank you that comfort is found in you alone. And I pray for the weary heart today. They would be so stirred up in their faith today to know you can be trusted, O Lord of hosts. The commander of the Lord's army, Jesus Christ, our Lord of hosts, you are with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. We don't fight for the victory. We fight from the victory if we are in you. And so, Lord, help us. Lead us, guide us. Let us stand firm with unwavering faith in these days, in the days ahead. Assured, O Lord, as Elijah was right here, that your word will prove true, and you have won that victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Loved ones, will you stand and respond with us? We are going to respond with some serious battle songs here, faith builders. And so sing them loud. Let's go. Let's have at it in praise to our God. Let's go, Sam.